Good morning. I'm so glad for the opportunity to be able to share God's word with you again today. And wherever you are, particularly if you're sat alone at home today, I want you to know that your church family is thinking of you and praying for you. We're continuing our series through a section of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapters 8 to 10, which we've entitled, When Jesus Confronts the World. And we come this morning to the end of chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, from verse 35. So far in this series, we've received a great deal of comfort from Jesus' life and ministry. I really can think of no more comforting passages to read during this crisis than Jesus' stilling of the storm, for example, or Jesus' raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. But we come this morning to Jesus' sending his twelve disciples out into a hostile world with an impossible task. And I think that this too is an important message for us, albeit a little less comforting. I think that the temptation for us in this present crisis is to huddle in our rooms, take care of ourselves and our families, and anxiously await the end of the storm. But the passage that we're going to look at this morning is an important corrective to that kind of thinking. While during lockdown we may not be able to go out into the world in the same way in which these disciples did, the passage nevertheless encourages us to be outward-looking rather than merely inward-looking. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, and we'll read from verse 35 to chapter 10 and verse 15. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts, Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment 
than for that town. I heard about two shoe salesmen who were sent to an island in the Caribbean to start an outlet of a major shoe company. And after two weeks, the one salesman sent a message back to headquarters saying that the entire mission was a complete waste of time because nobody here wears shoes. The second shoe salesman also sent a message back to headquarters in a similar vein, but his message was a bit different. He wrote and he ended his letter by saying, Nobody here wears shoes yet. This is a passage that speaks about mission, and down through the ages people have used these verses to speak about the Christian's mission in the world, and rightly so. There's a lot that we could look at in these verses, and we'll look at some of this again next time. But I'd like to focus in on just five words this morning. The words see, feel, pray, receive, and go. The first two words, see and feel, speak about the motivation for mission, and the words receive and go speak about the method of mission, and the word pray serves as a link in between, between motivation and method. Let's have a look. Firstly, in terms of motivation, we have the word see, verse 36. Matthew says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I don't know how you do in a large crowd, but I try and avoid large crowds if at all possible. I tend to get very nervous and edgy in large crowds. It must have been far worse for Jesus, though, because these weren't just a group of people who happened to be around him. All of these people wanted something from him. They wanted to see him or hear him or have him heal them or sit down and talk with him. Jesus has just gone through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. And yet there are still crowds of needy people in front of him. And although Jesus must have been tired and possibly in need of some solitude, he still spent time with them. You see, in looking at this crowd, Jesus saw something that none of the disciples saw. Jesus saw that the individuals in this crowd were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That's actually a picture that comes to us from the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 27, when Moses is about to die and he asks God to send Israel a new leader, he prays, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And throughout Israel's history, leaders were often described as being shepherds, Sometimes good shepherds, but more often than not bad shepherds. During the time of the exile, God speaks this prophecy against the leaders of Ezekiel's day. In Ezekiel 34, God says, Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You haven't brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. God goes on to say that he's against the shepherds of Israel and will remove them. And then he says this, 
I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. In his gospel, Matthew has already quoted Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so Jesus' very compassion for the crowd authenticates him as the true shepherd of Israel, promised long ago in Scripture. Here we have Jesus, the good shepherd. God come down to shepherd his people, looking at his feet, not en masse, but as individuals, and seeing them as harassed and helpless. I remember years ago hearing Stuart Briscoe deliver a parody of Psalm 23 that illustrates what a sheep without a shepherd looks like. Let me read it to you. The Lord is not my shepherd, and I find myself in a constant state of lacking. I seem to have an inordinate, overwhelming sense of pervasive dissatisfaction. I try all manner of ways of finding ways of discovering some degree of inner contentment, but it escapes me. I would give anything to find some peace and quiet. I don't know which way I should go in my life. I don't particularly want anybody to guide me, but I'm at a loss. In fact, I'm not even sure if there is a right way, because I'm not convinced that there is a right and a wrong. And as a result of that, I find myself going through life, and I have this awful spectre of darkness and danger and death, and I'm terrified. And as I find myself constantly confronted with the shadow of death, I sense evil forces around me and I am defenceless before them. I find myself desperately lonely. And there are times when I would even welcome somebody correcting me and there are times when I would even welcome the thought that somebody even cared enough about me to put me right, but nobody does. Everybody's doing their own thing. I'm doing my own thing. They're doing their own thing. And I'm just, I'm just like one little pebble on a barren beach. Enemies. I've got enemies. I've got more enemies than you could shake a stick at. I don't know how to cope with them. I seem to be singularly lacking in resources to cope with my enemies. And I've got a lot of old wounds that never seem to heal. It doesn't take much to just stir up the old hurts again. And I find myself dwelling on them. I find myself constantly thinking about them. I've no idea what lies ahead the rest of my life. In fact, I sometimes think that if the rest of my life is even close to what it's been so far, I'm not even sure I want to live it. When people talk to me about what happens in the forever. I'm not even sure if there is a forever. But if there is a forever, God only knows what's going to happen to me. And I'm not even sure if God exists. That's a sheep without a shepherd. And I think that in our world this morning, in this crisis in which we find ourselves, that sense of being harassed and helpless is even more heightened. People are worn out and fearful and anxious and directionless and leaderless. And when we truly see people, not as the world sees them, but as Jesus sees them, harassed and helpless, 
then that will lead us to the next motivation word in this passage, the word feel. This is the second word in our motivation for missions, not only to look, but to feel. Verse 36 again, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. The word that Matthew uses here for compassion comes from the lovely Greek word splangnizomai, which means to feel something in your guts. I mean, that's where we feel emotion, isn't it? Not in our hearts, as we say in English, but rather in our guts, as the Greeks put it. Matthew uses this word another three times in his gospel. It's there in chapter 14 when Jesus goes in a boat with his disciples to try and get some rest. But the crowd walk all the way around the lake and meet him on the other side. And Matthew says that when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. It's there in chapter 15, where we have the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus says to his disciples, I've got compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. And it's there again in chapter 20, where Jesus is moved with compassion to heal two blind men. And what about us? Do the needs of our world this morning touch our hearts, our stomachs? Founder of World Vision, Bob Pierce, famously prayed, Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. So what do we do when we see this great need and our heart breaks? Should we organise meetings and brainstorm ideas? Should we recruit volunteers for short-term mission? Should we set up a fund or establish a foundation? Well, all of those are good things but they're not the first thing. The first thing is to pray. That's our third word this morning. See, feel, pray. Verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I think that this word pray really is a linking word between our two motivation words, see and feel, and the next two method words, receive and go. And if we don't feel compassion for the crowds, then we should pray, and our prayers will lead us to compassion. And if we do feel compassion for the crowds, then we should pray, and our prayer will lead to action. Prayer, though, is the first and greatest thing that we can do. In one of his books, the Bible teacher and scholar Don Carson puts it this way, I'm convinced that the really great issues before us will be settled on our knees. This does not mean that we should do nothing but pray. It does mean we should do nothing without praying. It may be that there are some Christians around who are so heavenly minded they are no earthly good, but I've met few of them. I know far more who are so earthly-minded, they are good for neither heaven nor earth. Don Carson's written a whole book on the subject of prayer, and in one of the chapters, he gives a few practical points that I believe can help us to pray effectively during this time of crisis. It's no good just saying, pray. How do we pray? Well, firstly, we must plan to pray. Set aside a time and a place and a timer whether that's 15 minutes or an hour, to pray. 
You probably spend hours at the moment looking at News24 and Facebook and WhatsApp. How much difference couldn't we make in our own lives and in the life of our world if we set aside three 10-minute slots a day to pray? Secondly, find some practical ways to get rid of mental drift. You know what it's like. You start praying about something and before you know it, you're thinking about where you left your car keys. Praying aloud or writing down your prayers or praying through a psalm are good ways to avoid mental drift. Thirdly, find a prayer partner, somebody that you know prays well, and set up a weekly appointment at this stage over the phone to pray with that person. Number four, have a look at the prayers of others, either by listening to others pray or perhaps by reading books containing prayers. Again, the prayers of the Bible in the Psalms, Jesus' prayers, the prayers of Paul are a great place to start. Have a prayer notebook where you record prayers on the right and answers to prayers on the left. Number six, include praise, confession and intercession. But when you intercede, try to tie as many requests as possible to scripture. And then number seven, pray until you pray. This was a new one to me, but I like this concept. Don Carson says, Christians should pray long enough and honestly enough at a single session to get past the feeling of formalism and unreality that attends not a little praying. We're especially prone to such feelings when we pray for only a few minutes, rushing to be done with a mere duty. To enter the spirit of prayer, we must stick to it for a while. If we pray until we pray, eventually we come to delight in God's presence, to rest in his love, to cherish his will. In my years as a pastor, many people have asked me all sorts of questions about my work, both formally and informally, both politely and impolitely. I often get asked, what do you actually do as a pastor? I get the odd comment about only having to work for an hour or so on Sundays. My standard response to that now is, it's even better than that. Not only do I work just one hour on a Sunday, a third of that time I have my eyes closed in prayer. Besides the informal questions as a pastor, I have a staff evaluation once a year when I'm asked more formal questions about my work. But you know that in 20 years of being a pastor, no one has ever asked me this question, either informally or formally. No one has ever asked me, how much do you pray? You see, prayer doesn't seem like work because there are no tangible results at the end of prayer. You can't count the number of people in the seats, the number of people who've walked down the aisle, the amount of money in the bank. But as Oswald Chambers once put it, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. You know, folk, if we come out of these 21 days of lockdown and we've learned how better to pray, then this will not have been a waste of three weeks. Our fourth word is the word receive. Now we're moving into the method for mission. In verse 38, Jesus tells us that we are to specifically ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. This isn't the same as simply recruiting people for a job. The workers that God raises up will be gifted by him through his Holy Spirit to meet this enormous challenge. 
we can't just commission our own workers who don't have God's gifting. Otherwise, they will be simply mere office bearers and may actually do more harm than good. In his commentary on these verses, Michael Green puts it this way, we need empowering if we are to achieve anything for God. The power of the Lord and the mission of the Lord belong together. That's why in verse 8, Jesus says, freely you have received, now freely give. And then thirdly, in terms of method, we have the word go. Very interesting to see that in verse 38, Jesus calls on the disciples to pray. But in the next verse we read, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him. And then after reading their names, we read, these 12 Jesus sent out. That's the privilege and the danger of prayer. When we ask God to send out people into his harvest field, sometimes he turns around and calls on us to go. And indeed, I believe that God has called each one of us who know and love him to go and tell others about him. Notice that in verse 7, Jesus says, as you go, something he'll repeat again in the Great Commission. You see, God has placed each of us in a particular home, a particular job, a particular neighborhood, a particular golf or squash club, specifically to be a witness there. Sadly, many people are under the impression that this is only for the trained professional. But that's simply not true. In fact, so-called lay people can get into places and situations that the pastor could never get into. I think I told you before about the little boy who came home during a pastoral visit and he didn't realise that the pastor was in the living room. He just saw his mom and dad sitting there. And so he came running into the living room holding a dead rat by the tail. And he said, Mom, Dad, look at this rat that I caught. It was behind the haystack in the barn. I threw rocks at it. I hit it with a baseball bat. I stomped on it. I kicked it. I, I, I. And then he looked up and saw the pastor. And so he cleared his throat and said, And then... And then the dear Lord called it home. Some people are frightened of pastors or put on a show in front of a pastor, but they're not frightened of you as someone that they know at work or school. You're the best person to reach those people who will probably never darken the doors of a church on their own. Notice that going in this passage involves two actions. There was preaching and there was practice. Firstly, preaching in verse 7. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. The disciples had a message to share. And we too have a message to share. It doesn't mean that on every opportunity we will be able to sit down with people and explain the entire way of salvation. Although we certainly should pray for and prepare for such opportunities. But as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, we should always be prepared to give an answer to everybody who asks us for the reason for the hope that we have. In John chapter 9, we have the wonderful account of the time when Jesus healed a man who'd been born blind. And a few hours after he was healed, the man was called in by the Pharisees to explain what happened to him. That man didn't need any theological training. He didn't, didn't need to go on a course on how to share the gospel with people. He simply told them what had happened to him. John chapter 9, verse 25. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. If God has changed our lives, it shouldn't be too difficult to explain what has happened to us, to someone else. 
The second way in which we are to go is through practice, not just speaking our faith, but living it out before others. In verse 8, Jesus says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. We don't have time this morning to discuss this verse in detail. We'll probably need to come back to it at a later time. I think we can say that the broader principle of verse 8 is that we're to live out our faith before others. In the words of 1 Peter chapter 4, we are to use whatever gift we have received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. We're to live out our faith before other people so they can see the difference that Jesus makes and so that we can be Jesus to others through our actions. At the moment, in this time of lockdown, we're finding it very difficult to go, but there are all sorts of different things that we can do in this time. Again, after we've prayed and really sensed a call from God to act in certain ways, otherwise we may become overwhelmed or we could get involved in good activities, which may not be the best activities. I know that many communities have started community action networks where you can get practically involved. So Pinelands have a community action group which you can sign up for on WhatsApp and where you'll get a whole host of practical requests, things like making face masks, baking cookies for healthcare workers or delivering groceries to the elderly. I think that phoning people during this time is very important. We have a phone ministry in our classic congregation where we're asking folk to phone a few people every week just to keep in touch and encourage and pray with them. And if you'd like to be involved in that, you could speak to Heather James. But phone your friends, phone your family, phone your neighbours and acquaintances, especially those who aren't believers, and pray that God will give you opportunities to share the hope and the faith that you have. You could write a letter or send a WhatsApp to one of our healthcare workers. Maybe you know a doctor or a nurse or a physio or an OT who is or will be working on the forefront of this crisis. Maybe you just have a friend whose daughter or son will be in that position. And send them a WhatsApp to encourage them. Let them know that you're praying for them. Increasingly, this is the time for us to be speaking about our faith and practically demonstrating our faith to a world that is literally dying. So five short but powerful words for us this morning. See, feel, pray, receive and go. I remember back in my student days having to study church history and in the middle of a fairly long and dry and boring church history book, I came across the following very encouraging paragraph. The writer was speaking about the extraordinary spread of the Christian faith during the first few years of the church. It really was quite amazing. Just a few years after Jesus' ascension into heaven, most of the known world knew about the Christian faith even if they weren't all Christians. And how did the gospel get all over the world so quickly? Well, the writer put it this way. 
the missionary task itself was undertaken not only by Paul and others whose names are known to us, but also by countless and nameless Christians who went from place to place, taking with them their faith and their witness. Some of these, like Paul, travelled as missionaries, impelled by their faith, but mostly these nameless Christians were merchants, slaves and others who travelled for various reasons, but whose travel provided the opportunity for the expansion of the Christian message. The fact remains that most converts were made by anonymous Christians whose witness led others to their faith. The reason that you and I are Christians today is because ordinary Christians down through the ages have been sharing about Jesus just where they are. This morning, as our world faces what some are calling the biggest challenge since World War II, may God grant and give us all that we need to be those who see the world's needs, feel God's compassion, stand before God in prayer for the world, receive from him, and then go into the situation with faith and courage and hope to tell and to show others the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.